and welcome to PathPod. This is our next episode of Beyond the Scope. And today we're very pleased to welcome two new hosts, Dr. Lisa Zhang, a GI and cytopathology fellow at Massachusetts General Hospital, and Dr. Adam Booth, a GI pathology fellow at Beth Israel Deaconess Medical Center. We'll hear their conversation with Dr. Laura Lamps, Director of GI Pathology at the University of Michigan, and Dr. Rondell Graham, Head of GI and Liver Pathology at the Mayo Clinic. They'll talk about GI pathology, their mentoring relationship, their lives outside of work, and their tips for managing a busy career, including how to say no. Now here's your hosts, Dr. Zhang and Dr. Booth. Hello and welcome to PathPod and another episode of Beyond the Scope, where we chat with pathologists about their interests and activities outside of pathology. Today's episode has a special theme where two current gastrointestinal pathology fellows interview a rock star mentor-mentee pair in the world of GI pathology. I'm one of your hosts today. I'm Lisa Zhang, and I'm currently a GI and cytopathology fellow at Massachusetts General Hospital. You can follow me on Twitter at M-L-I-S-A-Z-H-A-N-G. My co-host is Dr. Adam Booth currently the GI Fellow at Beth Israel Deaconess Medical Center, and you can follow him at A-L-B-O-O-T-H-M-D. We are both very excited today to have Dr. Laura Lamps and Dr. Rondell Graham on the show. Thank you, Lisa. And I would echo your excitement to have both of them on the show. Dr. Laura Lamps is a professor and director of GI pathology at the University of Michigan. She is also president-elect of the United States Canadian Academy of Pathology. Dr. Rondell Graham is associate professor of pathology at Mayo Clinic and head of GI liver pathology. You can follow Dr. Graham on Twitter at R-O-N-D-E-L-L underscore G-R-A-H-A-M. Thank you both for joining us. Thank you for having me. I'm really excited to be here with my friend Rondell. I've never done a podcast before, so it's a new adventure, and uh, I'm really excited to be here. It's fun to be uh, invited, and uh, it's always great to talk with uh, Laura, and, and I think we'll have fun all sharing about you know what our experience is like in mentorship and what our experience is like in GI pathology. Well, thank you. So before we kind of get into mentorship, We'd like to hear a little bit more about you both outside of pathology and, and uh, what you like to do. So uh, can we start off with, you know, what do you like to do for fun and, and relaxation? My husband and I are big gardeners. He grows vegetables and I grow flowers, which is something that Rondell and I have in common. I also have done dog rescue for about 20 years and I practice yoga. I used to substitute teach yoga. And I love to read, and I like to cook, and I'm a knitter. Wow. I didn't know she was a knitter. <laughs> We're learning new things already. Be right. careful, Dr. you'll Cram. get a present in the mail. <laughs> <laughs> Just in time for Christmas. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> the cold weather coming. <laughs> That's right. Well, this is great. So yeah, Laura and I share flowers in common. One of the things that I like to do is grow orchids, or certainly take care of orchids. And so we have eight in our home now um, and a few of them are a little more than two years old and we have some that are about one year old and so that's something that we do we do for fun we're my wife and I are busy at home with our three kids uh, and in fact my wife is busier than me because I get to come to work outside <laughs> of the home and that frequently is less uh, busy than being at home I am a fan of reading and one good book that I've read recently is Enemies of the Heart by Andy Stanley. The book has been very interesting to me because I read the book thinking, well, this will have nothing to do with me, but I'll still read it anyway. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, he, he basically goes into a discussion of why greed, jealousy, guilt, and anger are unhealthy for our hearts and how they motivate the behaviors that don't help us. And so I started reading this book thinking, well, maybe it'll be interesting, but it'll have nothing to do with me. And I think that there's still things that I'm learning from it. Thanks for sharing about what you guys do outside of work. It's great to know that you can have a balanced life and have other interests as well. So let's move on to just getting to know a little bit about your path into pathology. How did you guys get into pathology and then decide on GI pathology specifically as an interest? So I loved it in med school. Um, I loved the course. 
which is one of the reasons I'm just so sad to see so many medical student curricula taking pathology out because I just think, first of all, it's the basis of all knowledge, right? So everyone should take it. But I think it's also so great for exposure to potential pathologists. But anyway, I just love the course and I realized that I loved microscopy. And then uh, after my second year of medical school, I got a job in the pathology department, which uh, all of you are too young to remember this, but there was a time when there was no PowerPoint. And uh, (laughs) Vanderbilt, where I went to school, had a grant to develop some other tools for visual learning, but they needed somebody to sit there and scan in all the Kodachrome slides to use for the visual learning. And so I got a job scanning and the drawers I got to scan were GI and liver. And I was like, wow, that's super cool. And so I just loved it. And the uh, professor, Dr. George Gray, who was my mentor at Vanderbilt, he was in charge of the visual learning and also was a fabulous pathologist. And so he um, became my mentor. And from there, I became a GI pathologist. Wow, that's amazing that you had the exposure and got into GI pathology as a medical student. Yeah, I know. It's pretty <laughs> awesome. That's super cool. Yeah, my, my story has some similarities and I discovered pathology at medical school. I did my medical school training in Jamaica. And there I remember in my third year of medical school attending a class on FAP, familial adenomatous polyposis. And I just thought that was incredible. The idea that there was a germline alteration that corresponded to what would happen in your colon and had implications for you and your family. I thought was amazing. So that was the seed that was sown there. And it was kind of like this tree that you can't chop down or you can't get rid of because over the course of the next couple of years, it kind of keep bearing fruit. I was really passionate about pathology and molecular, how those two things came together. And while we had almost no molecular pathology in Jamaica at the time, I just was really intrigued by just the ideas from studying FAP in medical school. And so from there, I I came to residency here at Mayo in Rochester, where I got some exposure uh, in molecular, and I decided to pursue GI on molecular fellowships. Thank you both. It sounds like you both had that early exposure to GI pathology and kind of pulled you into it. So you entered residency already with a subspecialty in mind. I would say that that's true for me. I mean, I think many people change their minds, but I, I feel like it was my first love. Yeah, for sure. <laughs> well, great that panned out for both of you. Yes, that's <laughs> right. I, I actually did not have a backup plan, so we <laughs> All right, so then I guess take us to when and how did you guys meet? I'll let Rondell take this one because I have my own... Um, memory but i want to hear his <laughs> that's, that's it's always tricky when that happens yeah um, so my first recollection of of laura was attending the use cap and seeing her at posters i think that was the use cap in san antonio 2011 that's my first recollection of actually meeting her i've heard uh, laura speak at a number of use cap meetings and so I was kind of really into her presentation style. She's a really strong presenter, as you all, as you all know. So that's my first recollection of meeting her. The first time we talked about mentorship was in the context of developing a course, also for the USCAP annual meeting. And I saw Laura's slides before the meeting, and I was like, oh, my goodness. She totally gets what the experience is like for someone starting out in practice. And I could tell from the insights on her slides that she had a lot more wisdom than I did, and she had a lot more insight than I did. And I thought, well, I could learn something from her. And so I reached out to her to get her mentorship and her support navigating the early part of my career, which I'm, which I'm still in, but certainly those first few years, which I think are, have their own unique challenges. And so that's been really, really fantastic and helpful for me. My wife is super happy about it. So that's the strongest endorsement that you can get in my family. <laughs> Fortunately, I remember it exactly the same way that Rondell does. Um, <laughs> and, uh, and so we were both involved in this course for junior faculty, which was a really awesome experience that we uh, wrapped up last year with Ron Antis and Raul Gonzalez. And uh, around 2011, I was early full professor and really trying to figure out what I was going to do with the next chapter of my career. And I was really burned out 
And so uh, with the help of a, a friend of mine who was an associate dean, I made a list of everything that made me want to go to work and everything that made me want to stay under the bed and not go to work. And then I came up with a plan for how to get out of this stuff responsibly, get out of the stuff, like not just run away, that I didn't want to do. And that was a really useful exercise for me. And so then I started reading more about time management and mentoring and taking stock of your energy and where you want to put it. And that's what I turned into the lecture that was my part of the course that Rondell and I participated in. But up until that course, I had never had the opportunity to practice on anybody but myself. And so when Rondell and I were visiting around the course and he said, you know, I'd really like to take advantage of some of these things. Could we talk about it? I was really excited because I enjoyed talking with him, but also I wanted more data points to see if this should work for me or if it was a set of tools that would work more broadly for other people. And so that's sort of how we started talking regularly and with a purpose as we worked through uh, some of those exercises with him, which was really valuable for me because I got really good feedback from him on what worked. Thank you, Dr. Lamps. Dr. Graham, you mentioned some unique challenges early in your career. Could you maybe expand on those a little bit? So I think the important challenges that we all face starting out are how to manage our time. And so Laura says this really well. When you are a pathology resident or fellow, you are, in essence, given a timetable. You're given a schedule. When you start on the staff, you're largely self-directed. You have to determine how you're going to manage this day or this week. And so I think learning how to manage that time is really crucial. A key element that she also gets into that I think is really crucial is how to work with extenders. And so she has some really practical tips for working with your assistant to manage your calendar, to manage uh, your time, and some of the, to assist you with some of the activities you do. And so I've used all of those things, as well as some other things that she mentioned in the course. But I think those are things that at the very beginning, all of us face, but are very important to be able to manage. And then, so it sounds like your, your mentorship relationship kind of began not long after a meeting. And then Dr. Lance had these exercises that you were kind of her guinea pig, so to speak, almost. Dr. Lance, could you talk some about the few examples of the specific exercises or tools that you implemented with Dr. Graham? So the first one that we did was the the energy evaluation that I had done is he wrote down everything he was excited about doing and everything that he really felt like was not where he wanted to put his time and energy. And we went through that and talked about how he might shift his uh, activities around a bit to maximize what he wanted to do and minimize what he didn't. And then I think the second thing we did was around meeting management. And I have them write down every meeting that they go to and why they need to be at that particular meeting and if they feel like it's valuable. Because I think all of us, as you finish residency and start your first jobs, especially in academic medicine, you find yourself just in this endless hamster wheel of meetings many of which could be emails or phone calls or, you know, sticky notes stuck on somebody's door. But, you know, because we have the opportunity for meetings and Microsoft Outlook defaults to an hour, we just find ourselves in this, these endless meetings. And so we did that. I think in my recollection, that's one of the most valuable things that we did because, you know, Rondell was being invited to meetings because he's a smart guy with a lot to contribute, but they weren't necessarily benefiting him. And then we also did essentially the same thing with all of his research projects and which ones was he driving and he felt confident they were going to pan out, which ones were he involved in uh, collaboratively and he felt good about and what were things that just were dragging him down. And we talked about giving some of those to trainees and really freeing him up to devote his research time to what he wanted to be doing and to what he thought would be the most valuable for him. So those are the three big ones I remember, Rondell. Do you remember anything else that we did? And we keep doing it. I mean, every so often we reevaluate and I do it on myself, which I think is a good habit. Yeah, I think she, she captured them there. And I think they're super, super helpful because everyone only has so many hours in a day. They're only 24 hours in a day. And I think that's been really effective. I think I ended up saving lots of time from that. Um, and I think the act of going through the energy exercise or energy evaluation made me realize where my energy was going and allowed me to be a lot more intentional 
about my time management. So I think that was really helpful. And because I sat down and kind of had to put things in a calendar, it made me think about also when is the best time of day for me. Uh, so the best time for writing and academic type work. And so for me, that's in the mornings. And so that I kind of made some shifts there. So I come in a little bit earlier to do most of my academic work before my clinical responsibilities start. And that's been a nice shift for me because then I get home earlier, which is great with the kids and the family. These are really great tips because especially for those of us just starting out, we probably don't even have a good sense of all the responsibilities that we may have in the future. And there are things in our life already that we probably don't really want to do. And as trainees, I feel like it's really difficult to say no. And that's something that I find myself constantly trying to learn as well. So I think Lisa's point is really good is that your ability to say no, fortunately, gets much easier and better as you get older and more, you know, and you go through your career, you know, and I fully recognize it as a resident or a fellow that, you know, there are things you just have to do. There are things that all of us have to do, but it's worse when you're a trainee. But, you know, I, I think each of us can only do so much well. And so when I say no, I try to, first of all, if someone asks me something, I think, you know, is this something I really want to do? Is it a benefit to me or is it a t- benefit to my department or to the group that asked me? I, you know, try to weigh the benefits. But if I don't think it's a good investment of time, I say no. I try to say no firmly, but then I try to help them find an alternative solution. So if I can't do it, I try to help them find, like, for example, a research project. I try to help them find a junior faculty member or a trainee for whom it might be a great experience and they'll get a publication. Or, you know, if it's a review an article and I can't do it, I try to refer them to someone that I think will do a good job. So I I try to help them with an alternative rather than just saying no. And I feel like people appreciate that and it helps the no go down a little bit easier. Thank you. That's really great advice. One thing that I've been curious about is after learning about your story and relationship and realizing that you guys have never been at the same institution ever, how has that affected your relationship and what are some advantages or disadvantages of of that mentorship relationship? I mean, I wish Rondell were next door so I could go show him (laughs) stuff and, you know, but um, I feel like it hasn't affected our relationship negatively at all. Like all relationships, we put time in and we always make a point of connecting every so often by phone or Zoom or whatever, which is really nice. And I think also it's a really good example of how you can find effective partners and mentors and colleagues outside of your institution. I hear a lot of faculty or people looking for jobs and academics who are like, oh, you know, I'm not going there because they don't have a pediatric cardiac pathologist who could mentor me. And I think that's really narrow-minded. Almost all of my most valuable mentors have either been at other institutions, even in other disciplines, other parts of pathology, or even other specialties. And I think people really have to think broadly about finding good mentorship and good colleagues, which is one thing I think the pandemic has taught us. I think Zoom has opened up a whole new world of uh, collaboration in some ways, even though we'd all rather be in person. So Personally, I don't think it's negatively affected our relationship, and I think that it's hopefully an encouragement to other people to think widely and broadly when they're looking for colleagues and mentors. I absolutely agree with Laura. I think it's been really terrific to work with and learn from Laura, even though we're in two different institutions. I think she mentioned a lot of salient points there, um, putting the time in. And of course, I'm working on it. And I think having very clear goals is really helpful. So goals for your, your mentorship, what, what are you hoping to accomplish? And in every episode or opportunity where you connect, having a specific question to, to answer is really helpful. I think from there, I think the relationships kind of develops from there too. Um, so I got to know, as Laura was helping me navigate these early days of, of being an academic pathologist, I got to know her better, uh, and she got to know me better. That's how we got to know we both had interest in flowers. That's how, you know, we got you know, to know, I, to know things about each other, and I got to know a little bit about what her practice is like, and I'm sure she got to know what our practice here at Mayo is like. 
Um, so yeah, I think it's been really, really great. And I think she, uh, she captured it well that I think now that we are forced to have social distancing or social distancing is, is prudent and many of us are doing it, I think we realize how much we can glean and how much we can share by electronic means. You mentioned a good point about your, your conversations. You have a, like a goal or, or a topic that you want to discuss. Do you have a, a set time that you all kind of talk or, or do you have a scheduled conference call or Zoom meeting? We schedule a call or a Zoom about every other month. Laura is very prompt and on time. If I set up for 9.30, 9.30 on the spot, she will call <laughs> right away. <laughs> so she does exactly what she says she's going to do at exactly at that time. Rondell, who, for the sake of full disclosure, I am going to hire as a press agent, <laughs> you know, makes it sound like, and I'm glad that he feels like that it's been of benefit to him, and that's awesome, but it's also been a benefit to me. And I think when I, I remember when I was a uh, trainee, I heard, I asked an attending if, you know, do you want me to show so-and-so this case? And they said, no, so-and-so is younger than me. I don't have anything to learn from them. And I thought, wow, that's a pretty limited outlook, especially as you get older, because at some point there just aren't that many people that are older than you. <laughs> so if you decide you can't learn anything from a younger person, you've really kind of, I think, done yourself a disfavor. So, you know, it's been really great for me to have this relationship with someone who's younger and who's better at tech and who has different ideas and thinks about things differently. And, you know, that's one of the discussions we've had about being productive in research is what different people bring to a research project. Like some people are awesome writers and some people are awesome idea generators and some people are awesome stats people. And that, you know, when you're working on a project, everybody doesn't have to be strong in the same way. You're trying to bring those strengths together. Mm -hmm. And I've learned a lot about that sort of thing from Rondell. And so I think it's important to emphasize that the best relationships like this go both ways. And, uh, and I'm really grateful for that. Well, thank you. There's <laughs> <laughs> a very powerful point that Laura shared that that's kind of embedded there is uh, knowing your strengths. I think knowing your strengths, identifying the strengths of people on your team, people you're in relationship with is really important because you can build on your strengths or you can put your strengths together in the context of research projects, which was the example she shared. But in the example of many things in life, if you can put together your strengths, you can accomplish great things. Uh, sometimes in life, there's a tendency to become focused on weaknesses, particularly other people's weaknesses. Most people aren't very focused on their own weaknesses. Uh, <laughs> <but> <laughs> that's, usually, uh, yeah, that's usually a losing way to look at this. It's really important to have a keen eye on your strengths and the strengths of others. I think one thing that a lot of trainees who are listening and who are out there probably have questions about is how to even begin to think about finding a mentor. I think a lot of people, when they start training, they're struggling to just get acclimated to their surroundings. And of course, this uh, huge learning curve. But what advice would you guys have for how do you even identify someone who you think could be a good mentor for you? And then on the flip side of that, how do you know maybe down the road if someone is not a good fit for you as a mentor? So that's like 82 questions. Um, but, uh, <laughs> I'll start, Sorry about that. <laughs> I'll start with the first one. Um, so what I try to talk to people about is there's probably not one person out there. Like we all wish we had a Yoda, right? Who was our, you know, our lifetime mentor and knew everything. and was so wise. And that's probably not practical for most of us. Most of us, are going to need different things at different times. So I talk to people about, instead of thinking I need a mentor, think I, I need a board of directors. And what is each person on my board going to bring? And so, you know, if you see somebody at a meeting and you think they're an awesome presenter and you're like, man, I wish I could present like that, then I would consider reaching out to that person and saying, could we have a conversation about how you became the presenter that you are? And I mean, most of us have enough egocentricity that if somebody approaches us and goes, you're so awesome and I want to be like you, we're probably not going to turn you down, right? <laughs> Especially if you give us a really, um, like, you know, like Rondell said, I'd like to have a 45-minute conversation with you every other month about becoming a better presenter. You know, if you give them a definite thing, a definite ask, or if you think somebody is better at liver disease than anybody you've ever seen, approach them with that. If you think 
somebody who's great at time management. So I think a way to break it down is to find people and figure out why you think they have something to offer and approach them about that. And again, I think most people are really, especially in the academic setting, if we don't help each other, academic medicine is going to go extinct, right? Especially academic pathology. And I think most people really want to help other people out there. You mentioned reaching out to someone. How do you recommend for uh, you know someone that might be a little more um, timid about reaching out to somebody? How do you recommend that they go about that? Even though you may be an introverted person, a couple of different options that I think exist. One is to have it by email, introducing yourself and then saying exactly, using the framework that Laura used, I think that goes really well, or certainly would work well. Another opportunity is to wait for the end of that person's presentation in the context of a USCAP meeting or some specialty society meeting, and then to approach them one-on-one. I think pathology, many of the people are introverts. So I think you'll probably find that you are in light company in, in that respect. So I think either, either of those options would work really well. Um, another option would be to ask someone if they have some time for a call or some a time to talk more about this, because many people are busy in the use cap meeting and overbooked and overscheduled. And so if you ask them for a specific window of time, five minutes, and to tell them what it is about, then many people will be able to identify a time slot that will work for both of you to be able to discuss uh, mentorship or for you to be, at least be able to present what you were interested in learning from there. Thank you for those very practical tips. What if you identify someone, a trainee or a junior faculty that, that you feel like could benefit from mentorship? Have you ever approached someone or how, do you, how would you go about that? It's a good question for Laura. I mean, you know, I'm, I'm old enough now that people aren't usually going to turn me down if I say I want to see you in my office. I usually try to <laughs> be nicer about it than that. But, you know, I was asked if I would talk to two people that needed not so much a little bit of professional mentoring, but he thought that they really needed just sort of somebody outside the scope of their everyday lives who was not in their direct chain of command to talk to. And he said, you know, would you just reach out to these two people individually and see if they'll talk to you? And so I did. I said, you know, send him an email, dear so-and-so, hope you're doing okay. He suggested that I check in with you and see if there's anything I can help you with. And feel free to say no if you don't think that'd be helpful to you. But if you think it would be happy to meet with you, let's set up some time. And so, you know, that's usually what I do. And then once I meet with them, I may identify things that, I can't help with, but I can usually find someone who can, especially with the help of my division director and service chief and all that. So, um, so I really, at this point, I figure all anyone can say is no, I wouldn't find that helpful. And I feel like it's better to reach out, especially if people are struggling. And often, I think one of the things that became clear in the course that Rondell and I taught together is people really have a need to talk about these things that they're struggling with in terms of time management and family life and work-life balance, and they don't really know where to go. And they don't want to always talk to the people in their own department because they don't want to be viewed as weak. And so I think we noticed that just every year that we taught the courses, people really wanted somebody to talk to, but they didn't know where to go. And so I feel like if we can provide that opportunity to people, that's a really valuable thing that we can do. And all of us at one time or another just need somebody to talk to no matter what it's about. And I feel like a strong department provides those outlets for people. Thanks for sharing that. That's a great example. And I've definitely felt like even during my fellowship here and struggling with a young child and the workload, just wanting to maybe complain or just talk to someone at some point. And I do kind of feel like I don't want to always be going to the same few attendings that I work with. I'll just be happy to see you in my office. At <laughs> I would love that. Thank you for offering. <laughs> and so can you tell me about some things that you guys do for just maintaining your mental health, avoiding burnout, especially in career? So I'm just really, really vigilant about my calendar and my hours and how I'm spending my energy. And um, when we decided to move here four years ago, 
that's one of the things my husband said to me was because he was much less keen on the move across the Mason Nixon line as he said, you know, we'll do this, but you can't be gone all the time because I'm going to be there by myself and I'm not going to know anybody. And I was like, well, that's fair, you know? And so um, I haven't always done great with that, but I've certainly done much better. And that was a really good wake up call. And so I'm really, really rigorous about sleep, exercise, nutrition, and being really careful about how long my days go. And I know Rondell, you know, one of the things that I knew about Rondell when we first met is he has these three kids who are pretty much the cutest children on the face of the earth. And he told a story and you, you should tell it Rondell, but I remember it. It's like you guys were um, like at a theme park or something, but all your son wanted to do was ride the elevator with you because he wanted to be with you. You should tell the story. But I was like, Oh my goodness, that's so important. And that's why he's doing this because he realizes how important this is. And that's always um, resonated with me, that story. Oh, wow. I, it was an interesting experience. It was kind of an eye-opening experience for me. Uh, we traveled to Jamaica and uh, with, the, with the family. My wife is from Jamaica, so we were staying. And we were at a, how do you describe those? It's kind of like a resort, but it's kind of like a play area. There are all these fancy things for, kind of, you know, for kids to do and, you know, to go on the beach and there's nice food and it's great weather and so on. And so it was the last day of our trip before we returned home to Minnesota in the winter. And um, I asked our son, our oldest, our older son, Ethan, what did you like most about this trip? And he said, I like riding on the escalator with you, daddy. That was the most important thing was spending time with you. And there it kind of hit me that one of the really important things to do for for my children is to master all of these mundane things because they really remember that, you know, um, which is very different from how our interaction with other adults is like. And I was an undergrad, one of my kind of a mentor there, he mentioned about his children and spending time with them. A lot of people talk about quality time, but there's also aspect of just like quantity of time, you know, just, you know, so I've always tried to remember that with my son, we don't have to be doing something amazing, you know, just like, being together and whether that's just like sitting around or relaxing or whatever mm-hmm. uh it's just having some time together that's really awesome and so um along the lines of what lawrence shared which i think there's some really great things one of the things i've done is read a little bit more about managing your work and managing your life and a couple of very powerful resources i encountered was were uh that's better grammar laura will notice that <laughs> <laughs> were, Great work by Martin Hansen. He used to work with Jim Collins. So he's Jim Collins' protege. It's a really great book. There are lots of interesting and and useful tips in there. But two of the things are, one, uh, focus. It's really important to focus. And Laura talks about this in the context of her energy evaluation. It's really important for your energies to be going into things that are productive, things that are winsome things that lead to other people flourishing, things that are positive. And, and the person you really need to convince of that is yourself, right? You ought to be honest with yourself about that. Um, so focus is, is a one part, and that's actually a major contributor to good performance uh, or great performance at work. And the other thing he mentioned was there's a paradigm wherein we think if we keep working more hours, things will get better and we'll have greater certainty over the future of our careers and greater control. And I think the data for that are, are overwhelmingly confirmed that that's not true. And so most of us work as human beings and get better and better and better up to about 60 hours a work week. And then the quality of our work gradually decreases. It doesn't go to zero right away after that, but it gradually decreases. So for that reason, I try to get myself in that kind of range, about 60 hours a week. I try to start early and get home in time for dinner consistently, night after night. I try to work very few weekends intentionally. And there's a bit of a trade-off there, which I know many academicians, because I used to get this advice before I was talking to Laura. You know, you've got to be in there on most Saturdays, most Sundays, uh, because that's how you are going to make it as an academician. I think a lot of things are out of our control. There's a fair amount of luck. There's a fair amount of things that are just a matter of timing, being in the right place at the right time. And I think there are some projects, some ideas that have so much likes to them that once you start them, they they lead to more and more opportunities. The idea that you need to be working 100 hours a week in order to find that thing isn't really based on any data. Um, And I think it, of course, goes against what the data we have from Martin Hanson, what they show in terms of 60 hours a week is where people produce their best work. 
are where they get their most value, but it also allows you to maintain valuable and meaningful relationships outside of work. And so to borrow a little bit from Clay Christensen, he is now deceased, but a very intelligent man. You'll know him for the theory of disruptive innovation. That's what he's really well known for, but he has a number of other theories, including one that I really like, which is the jobs to be done theory. Um, but before I go down too far on a tangent with him, he, he brings up the fact that we are, we're working on our work and we're working on our relationships. But our relationships really are long-term investments. And so we do what many people do in economics. We focus on the short-term deliverables from work and we ignore the long-term investment on relationship because we'll get to that at another time. The problem is when we really need to draw on those relationships, um, when we have underinvested in them, they're, we don't, they're too weak to support us. So that's the bit about time, Martin Hansen and Claire Christensen. The other thing I will say that's really crucial, and I think this is my experience with Laura as a mentor, where I, I see how this has been great for her, not just working with me as a mentor, but the way she's contributing to mentoring many people. I think the satisfaction she derives from this is related to something from a guy called Tom Rath, R-A-T-H. He's from the Gallup organization. He does a lot of studies and a very fascinating guy. I would encourage you to read his backstory yourself. He has this book, I think it came out in February, called Life's Greatest Gift. And it really speaks to the fact that the greatest gift we can receive is to be of service, to help others, to uplift others. And so that's what Laura does as a mentor for me. And I know she does this for other people. And I, my sense is the reason why she's able to do this for so many people is because by virtue of giving to others, there's a kind of reward that she receives. And I think that's part of the motivation and why that ends up being such a healthy dynamic for her. But you should confirm that with Laura first. <laughs> no, I think really that's really well said. And um, to go back to a question that Lisa asked that I, I didn't address is, you know, how do you know when you're in a bad mentoring relationship? And I think there are a lot of, of ways you, you know that, you know, if you feel like someone's using you to get work done for them and you're not getting credit or if they're dismissive or if they don't treat you with respect, regardless of your age or where you are in the hierarchy or if they undermine you, you know, there's a lot of, just like any relationship where we should all be looking for whether it's good for us or not. But early on in my training, I had a very negative mentoring relationship and it was apparent to everybody what was happening and all the other faculty. And it was just very apparent um, that it was a bad situation that I was having a hard time getting out of. And one of the other faculty came up to me and said, you know, I see what's going on and I've seen it happen before, but I'm not going to do anything about it because I don't want this person coming after me. And I thought, you know, I understand, but that's wrong. And I don't ever want to be the person who says, I won't step in or I won't help. And I don't ever want to be the person who would watch that trainee in a terrible situation and not go to them and say, okay, let's figure out what we can do about this because we all have the power to help. And so, you know, I do derive a tremendous amount of pleasure out of forming relationships with people and being able to help them do what they do best because it makes all of us better. And because I've been incredibly fortunate in my career and in my life, and I want to pass that on. I challenge all of us, wherever we are in our career, to be the person that steps in and helps and not the person who goes, yeah, I see that horrible thing going on, but I'm turning away. And I think that's a particularly good lesson for the times we're living in right now. We can all, no matter where we are in our life or our career, there's ways, little ways that you can step in and help and make all the difference. Really well said. Dr. Graham, maybe you could just start a hashtag on Twitter, hashtag Rondell's reading list or something. <laughs> and, uh, I so love that. Yeah. So actually, I know. Um, that's one of our next projects is we're going to try to start a leadership journal club based on Rondell's reading list and some things that, <laughs> that I've done and, um, and try to, cause you know, one of the things Rondell and I talk about a lot is, None of us are trained to be leaders, right? None of us got crucial conversations training in medical school or, you know, how to deal with difficult people or how to run a meeting or, you know, none of us get any of that training. And then we're put in leadership positions, whether it's chief resident or head of the autopsy service or whatever. And we're like, wow, okay, here I am. I'm a leader. What am I supposed to do? And there aren't that many resources for people. And so that's one of our long-term projects is to start working on that. I'd Sounds love really to great. Hear more about that. What advice would you guys give to those of us, including 
Stephanie and Adam who might be looking for our first job. I know one of the things we've thought about is what are even the qualities of a workplace that would be a good fit for us? And what should we be looking for? Well, I would say you want to try to work at where Laura's working. That one. <laughs> All right. <laughs> good to know. Good. That, yep. that, that simplifies your search a lot. Um, I would say um, history has a way of repeating itself. I think it would be useful to look for people who were in your situation chronologically. So a couple of years out of training in each of the prospective workplaces you're examining and seeing what their experience is like from the outside. And so if they appear to be thriving, if they're happy, if they're fulfilled in that workplace, that's a great testament to what the environment is like. So the point I'm getting at there is that your experience is highly likely to be similar to that of the colleagues who are there presently in their first two to three years in practice. So the people who have been there for 15, 20 years may have a very different experience from what you will likely have. So it's important to get the perspective of, of those people. And I will say too that workplaces, you know, again, tend to have a, a, a culture within them and it will be useful to probe what that culture is like. If it's a culture to help, if it's a culture to support, if there's a strong sense of camaraderie, those are all very positive things. If there's a sense of intellectual curiosity, that's also a very good thing. So by examining the culture, by asking direct questions and just observing, I think you'll get a sense of whether it may be a good fit for you or not. I think if you ask other young faculty and they felt, you know, I, you know my, my career was really enhanced by working with ABC, XYZ, then where ABC are and XYZ are are probably going to be good places to work. There's a, a book that I, escapes me because I'm old, but I'll find it. But he, uh, he's done a lot of work. He's a businessman and he's done a lot of work with the military and with professional sports teams. And basically he says, when you're looking for a job, does the job reflect your values? Because if your values and the job's values don't coincide, you're going to be miserable. And so the way I look at it when I'm talking to people is, you know, if your goal in life is to make as much money as you possibly can to pay off your student loans, but you choose to work in a place where their goal is to write five really good papers a year and, you know, have people be academic superstars, somebody's not going to be happy and it's probably going to be you, not them. You know, whereas if your goal is to write 12 papers a year, but you go to work in a private practice where their goal is to make as much money as possible, that's not going to jive. And I think people don't really think about that a lot when they start looking for jobs. And I think that's something to think about. I also think it's important to, I've joked that I've started three jobs and only one of them well, and that was the one later in life. And, you know, to really think about what you need to get your work done. And I think many of us are very uncomfortable with negotiation and with asking, but a lot of people end up really unhappy in their jobs because they just don't have the basics, whether that's a secretarial support person or a microscope that takes decent pictures or enough CME money. And a lot of times people don't even know to ask and so I think that's another thing to think about when you're looking for jobs is, you know, are they willing to provide you with what you need to do the job? What kind of recommendations would you have, I guess, given this current situation now with uh, COVID and everything and, and trying to evaluate the fit of a program or a department? I think that interviewing is definitely harder, but this is going to pass. But I think it doesn't prevent you from talking to all the people that you can by phone or other ways, you know, and the more people you talk to, the better you'll understand the fit and the personality of the place. And most places, I think, no pun intended, it's pretty easy to get a gut feeling. And uh, that was a GI path joke, get it? Uh, yeah. um, <laughs> you know, most, of us, most of us pretty quickly can tell if a place feels really bad or if it feels good, you know, it only takes, it doesn't take that many unhappy people for it to come across loud and clear. So I think even in this weird Zoom environment, the more people you talk to, the better. And often it's people in the trenches, you know, the residents or the um, support people. But I think, it, you know, at least you can talk to people by phone. In most places still, I think things are lightening up a little bit. They may have the Zoom visit first, but then they're still inviting people for a socially distanced visit. So I don't think they're cutting people off entirely from seeing the place. Yeah, I fully agree with Laura on that. Talk to people, listen very carefully, listen to what they say and also what they don't say. 
It's a good point. You know, we've talked a lot about like your mentoring and mentor mentee relationship, but have you worked on any GI pathology projects together as well? We haven't really touched on that. Could you maybe highlight, you know, one of those that you worked together that that you recall uh, well as a as a kind of a good experience or uh, hopefully a good experience? <laughs> <laughs> I, don't think, uh, I don't think I don't think either of us can. I mean, we're just wrapping something up that is like taking half of Rondell's life. Um, <laughs> no, that's really what made us talk about um, the different skills that people bring to a research project. Because on this one, I mean, Rondell and his colleague were definitely the idea people and the organizers. And I got to be more of the editor and the grammar queen. And, you know, we talked a lot about how sometimes when we're writing, you're so caught up in your idea and it makes so much sense to you that you're unable to see that it might not be clear to other people, which is why it's always a great idea to have somebody totally outside the project or pretty far out read it because sometimes mm-hmm. we convince ourselves that we make perfect sense and we don't. But this was has been a great project. Um, it's about uh, diagnosing FNH and Rondell and his colleagues set up a really interesting digital format and we had people all over the country working on the diagnoses and then we're just finishing up the manuscript. So I would, I would say that it was a really great experience. I will fully agree. I think it's a great experience. Uh, yeah, it was a lot of fun working with Laura. Laura is really gifted as you could tell with the use of language and grammar and communication. And so she was really helpful in making sure that there was a lot of clarity. And so she really improved the clarity substantially in the paper and the organization and of course all the punctuation and all those different things <laughs> so, she's, she's good at those things. so yeah it's been terrific working with, with laura on this particular project and as i think about it, it makes me think i should ask her to help me with more projects <laughs> so, uh, which yeah. i would happily do i mean the, the idea for this i would never have had in a million years it's a great idea but i don't have the technical know-how to do it and so i think it's a really good example of how you can bring people together with very different skills and make a really strong work product. Yeah, that sounds really interesting and another great example of inter-institution collaboration. My husband writes beautifully. He's a, a lawyer, a retired lawyer. And so um, the first book that I ever contributed to in a major way, I needed somebody to read it. And um, and I didn't have a good editor at the publishing company. So I gave it to my husband to edit and he did an absolutely beautiful job. And then he brought it back and he, he gave me the manuscript and he said, you split infinitives and I'll never eat sushi again. <laughs> <laughs> so I always think of that when I think about it. Um, That's awesome. So I guess we're, we're coming to an end, but is there any advice for residents or fellows kind of just starting their careers or top things you wish you had known? Wow, the top thing I wish I had. Yeah, I just threw it's you a on. Big question. <laughs> oh, I, I, I need to think about that a little bit. The top thing I wish I had known was, how would I say this? I think it, it sounds a little, it sounds a little bit vacant, but I think it is true. A major part of this of your career journey is about being yourself, truly being yourself. I remember, you know, years ago, I would hear that and I would think, well, what does that mean? Because you could only be one person, but it really comes out to being true to who you are, true to your interests, true to your values, and aligning your behaviors with your values. Uh, and I think it's really important to be true to yourself. So I think that's something that's really important for trainees. Yeah, and maybe to add on to that, too not compromise too much of yourself even when you're Mm -hmm. in a training position because I think when you start giving up things that you value or changing your personality to please others or your bosses you start going down the slippery slope yeah and I think your unique contribution is where you have amazing value because by definition it's unique so being yourself gives you the opportunity to make these contributions that no one else would or no one else is likely to, to make and, and is likely going to be an area of your strength. And I would agree with that. And I would also say I wish I had committed earlier in my life to really taking good care of myself because that would have paid off in a lot of ways um, before I really got serious about it. And I would also say, you know, at some level, all of us are really good pathologists. We wouldn't have gotten as far as we have, right? And I wish I'd understood earlier on how far you can get. You don't have to be the 
absolute best pathologist out there because we're all good at this, but saying you'll do what you say, what you committed to, and just being nice to people can take you so far. And that sounds so trite, but I think, you know, if, if you ask me what my success, I would attribute it to, it's much more that, you know, if I say I'm going to talk to you at 930, I'm going to talk to you at 930. And also, you know, just not being mean to people because there's just no point. And if that sounds Pollyanna, I'm sorry, but I really think that can get you a long way when you're looking to form good relationships, just if people know that you're well-intended. Yeah, I think 10 times out of 10, I'd rather work with someone who is pleasant to me and can value me as a person. You can't go wrong with that. You know, there's no reason to, to not be in pathology, at least in my limited experience so far. I've had a lot of great interactions with people that were always willing to to be helpful. You know, if I approached them uh, asking a question or this or that, you know, they were always very helpful. You know, like like Lisa, Lisa and I have ever, never actually met. So we just, uh, yeah. yeah, we've we talked awesome. about that. Yeah. We talked about that when we were discussing an idea for this podcast because we were like, oh my gosh, we're both GI fellows. We're both in Boston. This is like a crazy time. We still haven't met in person. <laughs> Let's do a podcast together. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, sounded fun, you know? So she seems nice from Twitter and, and her post. And, uh, you know, so I was like, she's in GI. It sounds fun. Let's uh, do something awesome. together. thank you both so much for being here today for taking the time to chat with us our pleasure and and i also just want to say a big thank you from all the trainees out there for taking so much time and energy and thinking about these kind of softer topics that we don't learn about that aren't really exposed to but that are super important in our life and our careers so thank you so much for that that was really fun. I appreciate being invited. Yeah, thank you so much. Yeah, it, it was fantastic. There's so many pearls yeah. in there. And then, of course, Rondell's reading list is going to have to be posted. <laughs> yeah. That's so. going to be your real claim to fame. Yeah. Oh, that's hilarious. <laughs> well, thanks thank a lot, both. guys. Yes, yeah. thank you so much. Well, PathPod listeners, thank you for joining us today. I know I learned a lot, and I hope you did too. This is Adam Booth signing off. This is Lisa Zhang. Also want to say big thanks to all of our listeners. I've also learned tons of excellent pearls today from Doctors Lamps and Graham, and we hope to see you next time. free path pod podcast comes from listeners who like it and share it with their friends so go ahead send someone the link and be sure to subscribe to path pod wherever you download your podcasts path pod is for educational and entertainment purposes only and is not medical advice as always on the podcast any views expressed are solely those of the person speaking and do not necessarily represent their employers their affiliated institutions affiliated professional organizations other speakers on the program their friends, their families, their pets, or anyone involved in the production and distribution of this podcast. Thanks for listening to PathPod. PathPod.